There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to Curious Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. The recent passing of Gordon Lightfoot marks the loss of one of the most important Canadian singer-songwriters in the history of North American popular music. Not only has he released dozens of albums, including over 200 songs, but his music has been recorded by a nearly endless list of artists from a wide variety of genres. His lyrics and melodies have been sung in honky-tonk saloons, dive bars, on legendary stages, as movie soundtracks, and reverberated in sound systems in some of the most happening clubs on the planet. He was an artist who was in many ways quintessentially Canadian. He loved living in Canada. He loved being outdoors. He loved hockey. He was a passionate advocate for the environment. He was a selfless friend, and while he certainly had his demons... He was generous to a fault to those he loved. His musical legacy is so profound that a single podcast episode barely scratches the surface, yet he must be celebrated because he is a leader in a generation of singer-songwriters, and especially Canadian ones, who fundamentally influenced the direction of popular music. This is Season 8, Episode 18, Gordon Lightfoot, A National Treasure. Today's book recommendation is the excellent biography by Nicholas Jennings titled Lightfoot. This was published by Viking Press in 2017. Gordon Meredith Lightfoot Jr. was born on November 17, 1938, in the town of Aurelia, Ontario. At an early age, his mother, Jessica, recognized that Gordon had musical talent. His mother's side of the family was quite musical, and when they visited, he often sang for his extended family. His mum could tell that Gordon had a musical knack from a very young age. Lightfoot's family went to Aurelia's St. Paul's United Church, where Gordon Jr. was soon enrolled in the choir as a boy soprano. 
Lightfoot attributes some of his earliest important music lessons to his time under choir master Ray Williams, who recognized in Gordon natural singing talent and taught him how to sing with emotion and confidence. Now, while Gordon's father was reticent to openly support Gord's singing endeavors, his mother was an avid supporter. By age 12, Lightfoot was regularly performing in public, even getting paid to do so, often with his sister Beverly accompanying him on piano. Word spread quickly about the Aurelia kid with a golden voice. In fact, it was at this time that young Gord would make his first of something like 170 appearances at Toronto's Massey Hall when he participated in the Kiwanis Music Festival, where he wound up taking first prize in the boys' under-13 category. He actually went on to win first place again in the following year's competition as well. In his teens, he attended Aurelia District Collegiate and Vocational Institute, where almost on day one, his grade nine science teacher recruited him into a barbershop quartet. It was with the Collegiate Four, as they were called, where Lightfoot made his national radio debut on CBC's The Dominion Barn Dance, and then his debut on television with CBC's Pick the Stars, where the Collegiate Four took first prize. However, nature took its course. Puberty hit and Lightfoot's voice dropped a few octaves, but this did nothing to stop him in his musical pursuits. Lightfoot had been taking piano lessons since he was a child, but it was in high school that he taught himself how to play drums and began holding regular concerts at high school parties. It was during his teens that he also taught himself to play guitar. By the time he was in grade 12, he was a bit of a local teenage music star. By this point, His repertoire was fairly expansive, from classic church hymns to jazz standards of the day to the latest in the new sounds of rock and roll, such as Elvis Presley and the Everly Brothers. Music was not all he did, however. He was also an accomplished track and field athlete, played on the high school curling team, and even played nose tackle for his high school football team, who won a championship during his time on the roster. Music was... Undoubtedly, Lightfoot's passion, though, and one day, while reading Downbeat magazine on his lunch break at work where he delivered linens, he read about Westlake College of Music in Hollywood that offered a diploma program in jazz music. After cajoling his parents, they agreed to help him out financially, and in 1958, the Aurelian kid with the golden voice moved to Los Angeles. Lightfoot talks about how many in his hometown thought the idea of him going to L.A. to pursue music was absurd. Now, though it was a two-year program, Lightfoot only stayed for two semesters, though they were vital semesters in teaching him things like composition, how to write musical notation, sight reading, and other important aspects for a songwriter-slash-artist to develop. The problem was, he was homesick, and this was a common characteristic of Lightfoot in general. So much so that in 1958, he moved back to Aurelia. No sooner had he gotten home than he realized how claustrophobic his hometown truly was. If there was one thing L.A. taught him, it was that there was a bigger world out there. Thus, Lightfoot packed up his clothes, packed up his stuff, and moved to Toronto. While in Toronto, Lightfoot worked at a bank during the day and plied his musical trade at night. 
trying to find gigs for his band The Four Winds, later changed to The Two Tones, he was continually songwriting, playing fill-in drum gigs, and making connections up and down the bustling heartland of the city, Young Street. Lightfoot eventually was able to quit the bank because he scored a job as a square dancing cast member on CBC's lovable show Country Hoedown. By 1961, Lightfoot had become friends with veteran musician Art Snyder, who convinced Lightfoot to drive down to Nashville with him to record some music. Snyder connected him with legendary producer Chet Atkins, one of the godfathers of what came to be known as the Nashville Sound. Thus, in 1962, Lightfoot released his first two singles under Snyder's label Chateau, recorded in Nashville at RCA Records, produced by none other than Chet Atkins. These two singles were Remember Me, I'm the One and Negotiations, It's Too Late. While they did not achieve any national or international success, in Toronto, Montreal, and parts of the northeastern United States, they did receive quite significant airplay. More importantly, they showed Lightfoot that he should be pursuing music as a solo artist, and the two tones came to an end, and the era of Gordon Lightfoot began. In 1963, Lightfoot quit Country Hoedown and flew to Sweden, where he married his then-girlfriend Britta Olesen, whom he had met in Toronto. This began Lightfoot's European sojourn. The newlyweds moved into a fourth-floor apartment in London, and Lightfoot was able to land a performance job on BBC's The Country and Western Show. His time in the United Kingdom was short-lived, though. When Britta got pregnant, the two returned to Canada in 1964. While Lightfoot was certainly known in certain circles as a performer, 1964 was when he really established his reputation as a songwriter, because this was the year when Ian and Sylvia Tyson recorded Early Morning Rain and For Loving Me. The folk duo had seen Lightfoot playing at Steele's Tavern in Toronto, and for those old enough to remember, this was a two-story restaurant and bar on Young Street sandwiched in between Sam the Record Man and A&R Records. Because of his connection with Ian and Sylvia Tyson, him and Ian became lifelong friends, in 1965, Lightfoot signed a management deal with legendary manager Albert Grossman. Now, Grossman was an absolute icon in the Greenwich Village folk scene. He was managing Ian and Sylvia Tyson, and thus through them caught wind of Lightfoot. Grossman also managed several other folk singers, including Peter, Paul, and Mary, and of course, the legend Bob Dylan. Grossman is even credited with bringing the song Blowing in the Wind to Dylan. With Grossman as his manager, Lightfoot signed a label deal with United Artists, who put out as his first single, I'm Not Sane, which hit number 12 in Canada in June of that year. Under Grossman, Lightfoot's reputation as a songwriter expanded dramatically. Grossman pitched Early Morning Rain and For Loving Me to the folk trio Peter, Paul, and Mary, who released both songs. And in fact, the trio's version of For Loving Me went top 40 in the United States. Eventually, numerous artists would cover one or both of those songs, including Elvis and Bob Dylan. 
In the summer of 1965, Marty Robbins released Lightfoot's Ribbon of Darkness, which topped the Billboard country charts in the United States. Ribbon of darkness over me Since my true love walked out the door Tears I never had before Ribbon of darkness over me At this point, Lightfoot's reputation began to grow exponentially. He was starting to collect significant songwriter royalties while he still played up and down Young Street, often partying with Ian Tyson and Ronnie the Hawk Hawkins. He kept up a continued residency at Steele's Tavern. He opened for country music legend Ernest Tubb at Toronto's Club Kingsway, and he began getting booked at major festivals, such as the Newport Folk Festival, the very one where Bob Dylan officially and controversially went electric. He even appeared on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. In 1966, only weeks after the birth of their second child daughter Ingrid, Lightfoot released his first full album called Lightfoot. It included many of his now iconic songs, including The Way I Feel, Ribbon of Darkness, For Loving Me, and Early Morning Rain. Now, while not a commercial smash, it was well-received in both Canada and the United States and received immense critical praise from folk music circles and music aficionados throughout North America. One of the interesting things about Lightfoot at this time was he was not permanently living in the U.S. In fact, he was one of the first Canadian artists to achieve domestic success, i.e. in Canada, without having to be permanently located in the United States. It was almost universally accepted at this time, we're talking about the pre-Canadian content regulation days, that to make it even in Canada... One had to be in New York, Nashville, or L.A. Instead, based out of Toronto, Lightfoot had established a reputation in both Canada and the United States as a budding singer-songwriter. Speaking of this later in his career, Lightfoot said, and I quote, I didn't move to the States because I wanted to keep my family ties. I liked being near my relatives. I was a bit of a homebody. It wasn't really necessary for me to move, lock, stock, and barrel. Toronto had a burgeoning music scene and was a great launching pad. His success in Canada was confirmed when the CBC commissioned him to write the Canadian Railroad Trilogy for a special broadcast commemorating Canada's centennial in 1967. This was a story song detailing the history of the building of the Trans-Canada-Canadian Pacific Railway. Lightfoot continued to record and release for United Artists, dropping four albums between 1966 and 1969, including The Way I Feel, which was recorded in the famous Quonset Hut in Nashville, known as Studio A. It was where Bob Dylan had recorded parts of Blonde on Blonde. This album, The Way I Feel, was followed by Did She Mention My Name? Then Back Here on Earth, which was recorded in The Barn, Owen Bradley's legendary studio down in Nashville. And then he finished off the 60s with the live album Sunday Concert. 
His songs continued to be covered by numerous other artists. His singles continued to chart well, constantly getting into the top 40 on Canadian radio singles charts, though his biggest success at the time was actually a cover of a Bob Dylan song, just like Tom Thumb's Blues, which charted in Canada at number three. Lightfoot got into a bit of controversy around that same time with his song Black Day in July, which was on the album Did She Mention My Name, released in 1968. The song was about the 1967 Detroit riot, and in 1968, after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, a number of U.S. radio stations pulled the song, claiming it was too controversial and even too radical. Some program directors expressed concerns that the song might, in fact, incite further unrest. Lightfoot publicly spoke out against radio promoters, and this got him into some hot water. However, Lightfoot was not slowing down. He was becoming particularly popular in Nashville. And for those who don't know, Nashville is generally considered the country songwriting capital of the world. And Lightfoot was, by now, a respected songwriter in country music, with numerous different artists cutting his material. In 1969, he even appeared on the Johnny Cash show. Interesting sidebar, several years later, inspired by his friend Johnny Cash's performance at penitentiaries in the United States, Lightfoot would perform at the Kingston Penitentiary. Sadly, unlike Johnny Cash, this performance was never recorded. The one area where Lightfoot at this time was still unhappy with was with his own label. He felt that they were dropping the ball on promoting his material as he had yet to have a serious commercial smash. Albert Grossman wanted to get Lightfoot over to Reprise Records. This is Sinatra's old label, which had been sold to Warner. And thus, in August of 1969, Lightfoot left United to join Warner Reprise. This would also be Grossman's last major act as manager. Shortly after signing with Warner, Lightfoot fired Grossman and became his own manager. Yet, the sky was the limit for him because it was at Warner where he got his first major international hit in 1970, with this song. If you could read my mind, love, what a tale my thoughts could tell. 
Just like an old time movie About a ghost from a wishing well In a castle dark Or a fortress strong With chains upon my feet You know that ghost is me And I will never be set free As long as I'm a ghost You can't see If You Could Read My Mind. This incredible song reached number one on the Canadian charts and number five on the U.S. Billboard charts. It also hit top 30 in Australia and the United Kingdom. It would go on to sell one million copies by 1971. The song, recorded in L.A. at SunWest Recording Studios, was written as a reflection on his disintegrating marriage, the first of three he would go on to have. You see, by the early 1970s, Lightfoot's heavy drinking, his endless run of affairs and one-night stands, and his continual time on the road contributed to a marriage that was falling apart. Britta and Gordon divorced in 1973. Interestingly, this song was never slated as a single. You see, the first single off the album, Sit Down Young Stranger, as it was called initially, was a cover of Chris Christopherson's Me and Bobby McGee. Yet, when a prominent DJ out of Seattle, DJ Smith at KJR, started playing If You Could Read My Mind instead of Bobby McGee, other radio stations followed suit. Warner took the hint, and If You Could Read My Mind became the second single. When the song took off, which it did rapidly, the album was actually reissued under a new title aptly named If You Could Read My Mind. The album went from 80,000 copies sold to 650,000 copies sold six weeks later. The song got Gordon Lightfoot nominated at the 1972 Grammys for Best Male Pop Vocal Performance. All of this was a game changer for Lightfoot. Prior to the release of this song, he was very well known in Canada, but outside of Canada was largely only known as a songwriter. And this song, If You Could Read My Mind, completely changed that. He became a North American household name. But his commercial success did nothing to slow down his songwriting success. Lightfoot was nothing if not a prolific writer. Over the next seven years, Lightfoot went on to release seven albums. His songs covered a massive range of topics, from singing about Don Quixote to songs protesting the killing of whales anti-war songs, and even a song called Alberta Bound, though this is not the same song that was released by Paul Brandt in 2004, which had the same title, nor is it the same song released by Brian Adams in 2010 with the same title. That's right. There are literally three different songs called Alberta Bound that are totally different. Lightfoot also toured relentlessly, and this was despite being diagnosed with Bell's palsy in 1972, which actually resulted in the temporary facial paralysis of one side of his face. Curious Canadian history. We'll be back after the break. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Folks, I know that sometimes advertisements can get in the way of a good story. And here at CCH, we never want a good story's momentum broken up. But we rely on the advertisement for the financial support needed to continue to make this show. That being said, there is a way to access CCH episodes advertisement-free. If you go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and search Curious Canadian History, you can access all our episodes for free by just donating $1 or $2 to the podcast. It's easy, safe, and a great way to get this content without the ads. Patreon even has an app, so you can simply use the app on your phone like you would be using any of your podcast apps and have every new CCH episode right there at your fingertips. Check out patreon.com slash Curious Canadian History today and join the club. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. So the 1970s were clearly this prolific period for Gordon Lightfoot. And out of the seven albums released after If You Could Read My Mind, Perhaps no single became more iconic than this one. I can see her lying back in her satin dress Sundown was recorded at RCA Studios in Toronto. The studio, for those who want to know, used to be on Mutual Street. The building was demolished in 2010. The single came off the 1974 album with the same name, and this song hit number one in both Canada and the U.S. It would also be his only number one in the U.S., the song was inspired by his tumultuous relationship with Kathy Smith. Now, Kathy Smith is a rather controversial figure. She was a groupie, uh, occasional backup singer, drug dealer, and she is the one who, in 1982, became infamous for injecting John Belushi with the heroin and cocaine that killed him. The album Sundown reached number one on the Billboard album charts, while the title track topped the Billboard singles chart, beating out Paul McCartney's Band on the Run. The album would go on to sell one million units in the United States that year alone and over two million worldwide, and simply put, Sundown catapulted Lightfoot into fully-fledged stardom. In the fall of 1975, Lightfoot followed up with Gord's Gold, which became his best-selling album of all time. Now, the inspiration for this best-of compilation release was that United, his previous label, had begun re-releasing old songs of his, ones that were recorded while Lightfoot was with United. 
And in response, Lightfoot simply re-recorded a bunch of the old United material, plus re-released his Warner hits to make this epic greatest hits compilation, and, frankly, to bury the United attempt to capitalize on old Lightfoot songs. Taylor Swift is not the first artist to ever do this. A year later, Lightfoot released another album, Summertime Dream, which included another one of his most iconic songs. You see, the story goes that in 1975, Lightfoot read a Newsweek magazine article which detailed the sinking of a vessel in Lake Superior with the loss of all 29 of its crew members. With the article in hand, he went on to write the epic song, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Legend lives on from the Chippewa on down Up the big lake they call Gitchagumi The lake it is said never gives up her dead When the skies of November turn gloomy With a load of iron ore 26,000 tons more Than the Edmund Fitzgerald weighed empty that good ship and true was a bone to be chewed when the gales of November came early. The ship was the pride of the American side, coming back from some mill in Wisconsin. The wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald went on to reach number two in the United States and was another number one in Canada, making it his second most successful single after sundown. What's interesting is, in the aftermath of this release, Lightfoot actually established relationships with some of the family of the drowned crew and even appeared at various memorial services commemorating the sinking. The town of Superior, Michigan, made him an honorary citizen because of this song. Now, one year after the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald, Lightfoot was invited to San Francisco's Winterland Ballroom for the band's final farewell show immortalized in one of the greatest music documentaries of all time, The Last Waltz. Lightfoot was, in fact, asked to perform at the show, but spontaneity was never his strong suit and he declined, instead watching the show from the audience. Imagine if Gordon Lightfoot had been on the last waltz. The 1970s was clearly Lightfoot's golden decade. He was even the first pop star to be hired by the MGM Grand in Las Vegas for a week-long series of shows. But his career was not all just booze, women, and partying. Lightfoot was also very socially conscious and embraced numerous causes, holding dozens of benefit concerts during his career for issues such as world hunger, for the environment. He did hometown charity shows and even did shows raising money for cerebral palsy research. Sometimes he was just flat out generous. There are numerous occasions where he helped his friends out financially without any expectation of return. The 1970s were so successful for him that in 1980, he was named Canadian Male Recording Artist of the Decade for his work in the 1970s. 
Now, by the beginning of the 1980s, Lightfoot's touring schedule was slowing down a touch, but his writing was as prolific as ever. He released six more albums that decade, yet his 1980 release, Dream Street Rose, seemed out of touch with the new music that was taking over the mainstream. Bands like Blondie were topping the charts, and even Paul McCartney and Bruce Springsteen were beginning to experiment with more digital and synth-based sounds. Dream Street Rose maintained Lightfoot's classic folk sound, but this led him to being thrust into the genre of easy-listening music. There is a story that says that the staff at the Greek theater in L.A. used to play Lightfoot songs at the end of rock and punk shows to clear the place out. His 1982 release, Shadows, had much more of an adult contemporary vibe to it. This album included the song Baby Step Back. While the song reached number 17 on the U.S. adult contemporary chart, one of a few songs that would find success on the AC charts, it would be his last top 50 on the U.S. Billboard Top 100. His mainstream commercial success was certainly waning at this point, but Lightfoot's health took a turn for the better when he finally committed to getting sober in 1982, and within a year, he had lost over 25 pounds and began committing to a fitness regime that saw him actually put on muscle. In 1986, Lightfoot did go on to have another top 20 on the AC chart with the song Anything for Love, and this was produced by Canadian David Foster, and this was off of the album East of Midnight. This was a single that also charted at number 71 on the Billboard Country and Western chart. Interestingly, Lightfoot said the album East of Midnight was the best piece of work he ever did. A year later, Lightfoot was embroiled in a dispute over accusations that writer Michael Masser had stolen his melody from If You Could Read My Mind for Masser's own song that he wrote, The Greatest Love of All. Now, let's hear both of these songs and see if we can identify the similarities. Let's first play If You Could Read My Mind. And I will never be set free As long as I'm a ghost you can't see Okay, now let's listen to Michael Masser's The Greatest Love of All being sung by none other then Whitney Houston. Lightfoot filed a lawsuit against Masser 
but he eventually dropped it because Lightfoot didn't like the way the lawsuit was affecting the reputation of new singer Whitney Houston, and he decided to settle out of court to get the issue out of the headlines. The end of the 1980s brought a couple more highlights for Lightfoot. In 1988, Lightfoot performed at the Winter Olympics in Calgary, and in 1989, Lightfoot married for the second time to Elizabeth Moon. They divorced in 2011. The 1990s saw Lightfoot record two more albums, and at the end of that decade, a massive four-CD boxed set was released called Songbook. This included all his hits, as well as a variety of rare and unreleased material. Lightfoot kicked off the 21st century, now firmly established as a legend. In April 2001, Lightfoot played at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville for the Tin Pan South Legends Show. For those who don't know, Tin Pan South is an iconic songwriter festival in Nashville, and the Legends Show is often the pinnacle of the week. In 2002, Lightfoot was on tour when he was struck with illness before a concert in Orillia. He was airlifted to a hospital where he had to undergo emergency surgery for a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm, which resulted in him being put in a coma for six weeks, where he underwent four more surgical operations. He was released after three months in the hospital. Now, this near-fatal incident might have slowed him down, but it didn't stop him. In 2003, he signed a new record contract with Linus Entertainment. This is an independent record company out of Ontario. And under Linus, he released his album Harmony, much of which had been written prior to his hospitalization. And in July 2004, he performed live for the first time since his surgery. He appeared on Canadian Idol, where the six final contestants all had to perform one of his songs. And in 2005, he went on a small tour called the Better Late Than Never Tour. In 2006, while in the middle of a performance, Lightfoot suffered a minor stroke, which left him without the use of a couple fingers on his right hand and took him eight months to recover from. In 2009, Lightfoot was back, however, with a 26-city tour, Despite a death hoax in 2010 where Lightfoot actually had to call into a radio station to confirm he was still alive and well, Lightfoot continued to tour, write, and record. He performed at the 100th Grey Cup in November 2012 where he played none other than the Canadian Railroad Trilogy. In 2014, he married for the third time to Kim Haas. And in 2017, he performed at Canada's 150th birthday on Parliament Hill, the very same stage he had played on 50 years before in 1967. In 2020, Lightfoot released a new studio album called Solo, which was released by Warner Music Canada. But it was while on tour in 2023 that Lightfoot became ill forcing him to cancel the remainder of his tour. Gordon Lightfoot died of natural causes in Toronto on May 1st, 2023, at the age of 84. He left behind five children and a massive musical legacy. His awards and recognitions are nearly endless. He's received 16 Juno Awards. He received four of the coveted ASCAP Songwriting Awards. ASCAP is a major Nashville-based performing rights organization and has been nominated for five Grammys. 
He was inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame in 1986 and the Canadian Country Music Hall of Fame in 2001, and then in 2012 was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in New York. He received the Companion of the Order of Canada in 2003 and held honorary doctorates at Trent University and Lakehead University. He received a Lifetime Achievement Award from SOCAN, that's Canada's largest performing rights organization. This was in 2014, and in 2017, CBC ranked him as the fifth greatest Canadian songwriter ever. Some of the artists who have cut and or covered his songs include Barbara Streisand, Elvis Presley, Marty Robbins, Anne Murray, Harry Belafonte, Jimmy Buffett, Blue Rodeo, Johnny Cash, Eric Clapton, Bob Dylan, The Grateful Dead, Waylon Jennings, Toby Keith, Alison Krauss, and so many more. Robbie Robertson of The Band called him a national treasure. And Bob Dylan, despite him once jokingly saying they had a fierce musical feud, has called him a mentor and one of his favorite songwriters of all time. Bob Dylan said about Lightfoot, I can't think of any Gord Lightfoot song I don't like. Every time I hear a song of his, it's like I wish it would last forever. High praise indeed. Rest in peace, Gordon Lightfoot. I want to thank you all for listening today. Don't forget, you can find me on Twitter at Doc Boris. That's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Patreon. And you can find us on all podcast listening devices. And please do not hesitate to write and leave a comment. We love to hear from you. I'm David Boris. Stay curious, friends. 